A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So I have a new verb for the week. Uncorkered. Ah, it's an like adjective. It. Or okay, uncorked. It's an adjective. It's like uncorked, but for the way you yeah, feel about your boss. Exactly. So no, what would be an example boss. of using it in a sentence? Um, I uncorkered on him to the New York <laughs> Times. <laughs> He's telling you what he really thinks. He's totally uncorkered. I like it. You like it? I like it. It needs a sound effect. <laughs> that's a drip that's, that's a drip no, it's the sound of pulling the cork off okay yeah. fair enough uncorkered there Let's you go try. good word Shane thanks hello and welcome to Rational Security the adult daycare edition I'm Shane Harris pesky reporter um, I could use some adult daycare. Oh, man. Where Apparently is the pacifier? best adult daycare, according to Senator Uncorkered, is at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Not good enough adult daycare, though. <laughs> yeah, some, somebody Negligence. missed a shift. <laughs> Can I just say that, like, I hope he wrote that tweet himself, because that was actually, uh, I think, uh, an inspired senatorial tweet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. judging from the transcript of his discussion with the New York Times, I think he could have written that himself. He's a witty guy, apparently. I, I think it's, you know, it's a it's just something that, you know, to all of our senatorial staff and and senatorial listeners, uh, this is a tweet to which you should aspire. I, I think, you know, the, it's not every day that people quote Senate tweets for several days at a time this is one of them and i think you if you guys are not achieving that you're you you've you should you know step up your game a little bit i believe it might be what our audio engineer matthew Kahn and his generation might call a sick burn Ace. yes a very sick burn it was a sick burn i've never heard that phrase before you never heard that no yeah bob corker definitely laid a sick burn on donald trump with that tweet and that just means like a a A one-up yeah oh he really won up it was what our generation would say yeah Yeah. exactly slam (laughs) so but i just want to point out that trump's tweet in response this morning is complete Gibberish. I didn't get it little, but L I D D L. First, there's short? the little thing. Well, that was and like little little short. Marco. I know, but it's not like he. I mean, he never spelled little Marco with D's. I don't he know. Did. He did. I think so. With D's. I thought he did. Why does it spell with know, D's? Here's little, the thing. Like, little. Okay, so he's trying he, to be like folksy. He's he wants to be little people, so he calls them little. Wow, that's. Thoughtful. But but then but then the other the implication of the tweet is that Corker uh, got didn't know he was being recorded by the New York Times, which is actually one of the most interesting things that he both went on record repeatedly in the transcript said were on record had his own staff record the conversation and then reportedly at the end confirmed again with the New York Times reporter, you got all of that on tape, right? <laughs> yeah. So I, I just thought it, I just thought it was a it was a very strange thing. I've actually been recorded by the New York Times once. Uh 
you with know, your knowledge. Uh, yeah, I, they don't do it surreptitiously. No, they, they, they like you take know. out a device. They ask permission. Is it okay if I record <laughs> this? <laughs> um, we're going to talk about that. We're just jumping right into that. Uh, Bob Corker's comments. Uh, I'm, of course, here with Ben Woodis, Susan Hennessy, and Tamara Kaufman Woodis. Hi, guys. Hey, Shane. Hey. Uh, we're going to keep talking about Bob Corker and his comments to the New York Times, uh, as well as Russia hacking the NSA using a popular Russian antivirus software. Woo-hoo. And Congress starts the bidding over a key surveillance law. Um, going back to the Corker interview with the New York Times, okay, so the probably the most startling thing that he said, and I think we've kind of hashed over already the the warring tweets and whatnot over the weekend. Um, I think the thing that struck most people as the most startling was that if the president keeps up his behavior, he risks pulling America into World War III. Um, Bob Corker, I don't think, is not someone known for hyperbole or exaggeration. No, or alarmism. Or alarmism. So I want to know from you guys, what are this? I mean, the tweets aside, which I think a lot of people found probably very effective and some people probably found very satisfying. This was a really remarkable interview that he gave to the Times and much more substantive. So, A, what is the significance of what he said on its face? And B, what is the political consequence going to be of that? What do you think, tomorrow? So I think in terms of the the rhetoric or, you know, the statements he made, he's kind of pulling, jerking the curtain away from all the congressional Republicans who have spent the last uh, 10 months sort of excusing or explaining away uh, highly aberrant behavior by the president, Um, you know, (laughs) saying everyone in my caucus feels this way. Right. No one's saying it. I'm just the one saying it out loud. So by by putting it in that frame, he's basically saying no matter what these other guys say from here on out, trying to excuse the president's behavior, take it as bullshit because – you know, we all know what's going on here. So I think that it's an emperor has no clothes kind of moment. But um, while I think that is worth welcoming, uh, the immediate reaction amongst a lot of people who have not had any trouble saying that the emperor has no clothes for the last 10 months is, okay, what are you going to do about it? This is a senior Senator, yes, he's retiring um, and not running for re-election, but he is the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee. He is one of a very narrow Republican majority. He has very strong relationships with his colleagues, Republicans and Democrats. And if he wants to use the next months to get some things done to constrain what he very explicitly sees as a very, very dangerous president, dangerous to America, dangerous to the world... There's stuff he could do. So, you know, I, I'm kind of like, okay, good. I'm glad you said it. Now what? Mm-hmm. Okay, but what, but but put bring that to brass tacks. What does Bob Corker do if he's really uncorkered? And <laughs> he's got this, he's now free for the next 15 months. This is clearly the way he's conceived of it, right? right. right. He is not running he's for re-election that, yeah, so that, that he can way, be yeah. free for yeah. the next 15 months. And he said his greatest <clears throat> service is right. going to be in these 15 months. And this is presumably the beginning of that. But okay, he's not the chair of the House Judiciary Committee where you can say, I know exactly what Bob Goodlatte could do if he were uh, similarly unconstrained. Uh, he's not uh, even a member of the House. He can't write, you know, articles of impeachment. He 
Uh, last I checked, the 25th Amendment is cabinet-driven, not driven by the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So other than being a vote that's not reliable, what does he get to do? So I, I think that there are things he can do as committee chairman. And I'll come back to that in just a sec. But I also think we have to remember that the Senate is a club. It's a very small club. Um, and he is somebody who is highly respected on both sides of the aisle in that club. Um, and so I don't think that you should underestimate the um, soft power, so to speak, of a senator in that position. And I don't think you should underestimate the value of the change in the discourse. The fact that, you know, anytime someone comes out and tries to make excuses, he can be there and say, I call bullshit. I call bullshit. And I do think that that's important. Um, nobody can sort of pretend things are normal anymore if Corker is willing to continue to play the role that he played in the New York Times interview. Now, substantively, what can he do on foreign policy? We've already seen him lead the Senate in constraining the president's ability to lift sanctions on Russia. Um, and I expect that he'll remain strong on that issue. That's a long standing commitment for him. Iran you know, he voted against the JCPOA, the nuclear agreement, uh, which President Trump is apparently set to decertify this week, which will kick the issue to Congress uh, and give them an opportunity, if they wish, to vote on reinstating sanctions on an, ex in a, on an expedited basis. He uh, can work either with the majority leader or on his own to block such consideration. Um, and uh, if he thinks that collapsing the deal is dangerous for the United States, um, something he's hinted at, uh, then he has a lot of scope for action there, uh, rallying with Democrats who are all lined up to support and sustain the JCPOA. And then finally, you know, as committee chairman, he has a huge oversight role over uh, the State Department and the national security bu bureaucracy. And we have a secretary of state and a White House who are bent on dismantling precisely the element of American foreign policy that could help prevent World War III. So if he wants to, he could call Rex Tillerson up to testify every week. Why haven't you appointed people to senior positions? What is our North Korea policy? What is our diplomacy with Russia? What is our diplomacy with China? You know, just by doing that oversight job in a targeted and aggressive way, he can really shape the discussion and shape the options for the president. Yeah, I, I mean, I do think that he, you know, what he does sort of in the next few months is going to be an important roadmap. He's not the only senator who's not running for re-election. Um, so John McCain looks extraordinarily unlikely that he'll run again. Um, so I do think that there are other people who are sort of are, are looking at this period of service with the same kind of you know, how do you have the best impact? And and in some sense, you know, you give up a little bit of power whenever you say you're not running for re-election re because you, you give up some authority in the party and sort of the ability to inflict. But you're uncorkered. Exactly. But you are sort of, you're, you're sort of unchained. And so I think what he can do just in terms of the willingness to talk is he can bring, look, everybody, everybody, lots of people know sort of what's being whispered around Congress right now, those things people are most concerned about. He can bring those whispers to the front page of the New York Times in a really, really credible way. Um, that in itself is sort of a service. And, and it will be interesting to see if other uh, if other others of his colleagues, particularly McCain, Collins, you know, Graham, Murkowski, other people who've shown themselves a little bit uh, wary of the president, 
are interested in following him. The other thing that he can do just on sort of a basic policy level is put a ton of pressure on Mitch McConnell because McConnell on like ultimately is the one that's sort of going to decide Donald Trump's fate in terms of the Senate. And he cares a lot about uh, you know, he cares a lot about votes and he cares a lot if, if sort of Corker can get one other person to go along with him on this. And so I do think that uh, either whether or not he's working sort of in tandem as as McConnell's kind of back channel to mount pressure on the White House or whether or not he is uh, constraining McConnell himself, right, pressuring him to do things like not shut down the Russia investigation, uh, you know, loudly oppose particular policy by saying, look, I'm not going along with tax cuts. I'm not going along with your next effort on healthcare. You really aren't going to be able to get stuff done if you don't accommodate me on these sort of core concerns. You know, the other thing I think he's doing is elevating the rhetoric out of politics and to say this is not about sort of petty, you know, gamesmanship. It's about like the future of the United States. And I think that kind of moral leadership, I do think other Republicans are looking at that and saying, I don't look so good in comparison right now. So I think Corker actually hurt himself in the moral leadership department by a couple of things. One is, you know, waiting as long as he did. And supporting the president up until then. Yeah. And secondly, waiting until the president attacked him. I mean, you know, it's it's kind of easy to defend yourself when somebody's attacking you. But, you know, the... The list of times that Donald Trump's behavior warranted the adult daycare tweet that just didn't war just the target didn't happen to be Bob Corker is really, really long. And so I worry a little bit that the precedent that he said is that everybody's free to defend themselves against Donald Trump. Um, That said, look, I agree with you about the moral leadership component. The more people say the, you know, feel freer to say the more things. And every time somebody's willing to stand up and speak the truth, it's a good thing. I think until it's a block of House Republicans, the uh, actual practical consequences of it are pretty muted. And um, the the relevant question to me is when enough House Republicans are willing to say similar things that you actually have meaningful pressure on the Bob Goodlats of the world. Because all the rest of it is everything Tammy just listed as a as a you know as a a uh, practical thing that Bob Corker can do, none of it stops the thing that Bob Corker was warning about, which was World War III. So, Ben, the, Corker came very close to saying, and I think he probably <clears throat> believes it, the president is nuts. He came very close to saying that. Essentially what he Certainly said— Certainly a reasonable person yeah. hearing what yes. he said would draw that conclusion. He has, he has yes. said in other—he has, he has drawn people's attention to uh, what he believes is the president's lack of fitness so far for the office before. So if Bob Corker were to come out and just explicitly just say it that clearly, no— uh, um, no sort of euphemism, uh, no uh, caveating, and just said the president of the United States is not fit to hold this office. Would that change anything? Or are you saying that if he said that, uh, it still wouldn't have an effect because House Republicans aren't saying it? Well, so, 
you know, the, the mechanisms that we have to rein in a president are limited, and none of them, uh, you know, yes, two of them are legislative and, and oversight, but uh, those do not go to presidential sanity and fitness. They go to uh, the operating environment in which the president behaves with whatever level of sanity he has. The two mechanisms that we have are impeachment, which, one, which begins in the House, and the 25th Amendment, to the extent that you want to think about this in the language of disability, which begins in, in the cabinet. And so, you know, I, I just think there's a limit. I, look, it's good that, that senators are willing to stand up and speak the truth. And it's a shame that more of them are not. And it would be really good if that, if the things that Bob Corker were saying, uh, which are self-evident to all reasonable people, irrespective of ideology, were the kind of thing that were talked about in the political arena as though it were that, rather than as this brave moment where you stand up and, and say these things. But I want to mm -hmm. say that it's not enough. And until you have a block of people in the House of Representatives who are prepared to actually vote on that basis, uh, it's just it's just talk. Well, I think that might be setting the bar too high. Honestly, look, um, I, if there are grounds for impeachment and you can build a coalition for impeachment and impeach, that is one way to decisively get rid of a president that we think is um, a degradation to the office, a danger to democracy and a danger to the national interest. But um, that's a very high bar. And I think it's worth thinking about this as a two front war. And saying, as long as this man is in office, what can be done to constrain his impulses to the extent that they are dangerous and destructive? And so I think that it's very worthwhile having people in Congress who may not have the power to impeach, but have the power to constrain in policy terms, in concrete ways, and are working to do that. And and I think that's laudable in and of itself. I actually don't think the more that the leadership that Corker is um, exhibiting here is moral leadership for the reasons that you said, Ben, I think his moral leadership is compromised. He wanted to be the vice presidential nominee. He wanted to be secretary of state. So forget it. But I, I think that the leadership that's being exercised is political leadership, potentially policy leadership, and uh, and frankly, that's that's good. That's very very worthwhile. So I, I agree. I, I agree with Tammy that there's there are lots of measures short of impeachment. Sort of an openly oppositional members of Congress of the president's own party has its own effect. I think whatever you, I, I think you're selling him a little bit short, sort of on the moral leadership question, and and that it's not moral leadership in like in an abstract sense of the term or an overarching sense of the term. It's moral leadership of the Republicans and and speaking directly to that base. And there is I don't I I don't disagree with your account of sort of he's waited too long. He wanted to be Secretary of State. He wanted to be Vice President. President. There's another way to look at that as well, though, which is that he worked really hard to work the inside channels. He really sort of tried to play by the rules. He's not a product of Trump derangement uh, you know, syndrome. He's not kind of of this group of Republicans that the Republicans very early identified as, well, you just don't like the guy because he's not establishment Republican. He really did try and make it work. And so I do think that for him to now reach this breaking point, and I do think he reached it first, right? Trump didn't come after him out of nowhere. He 
he made the comment that the White House is essentially in chaos all the time and sort of the, the need for that management. Then Trump attacked him. I agree, sort of the tweet was funny, but it does compromise his sort of it does compromise him on that that sort of morality or leadership high thing. ground. It, it, it's, thing, it is yeah. the low road, um, but a funny low road. But <laughs> but I do think that there are two stories that you can tell about how Corker got to where he is and that ultimately the most relevant story might not be the one that we see or perceive as having been the story of the last eight months, but what kind of rank and file Republicans and, and the Trump base or or the people who are sort of teetering on the edge of the Trump base, how they look at someone like Bob Corker. So speaking of compromised. <laughs> that was a good segue. You're getting good at this. I'm getting really good at this. Um, My segue downstairs salutes you. <laughs> um, my colleague Gordon Lubold and I broke a story in the Wall Street Journal last week that... Why, you devil. Why, devil. You are yes. busy, Shane. I said I was a pesky reporter. <laughs> uh, that uh, Russian hackers using a popular antivirus software called Kaspersky stole a boatload of highly classified information from the NSA about offensive and defensive capabilities and how we spy, you know, garden variety stuff. Rational Security <clears throat> brought to you by Norton. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the crux of this story is very interesting. So a contractor working at NSA walks off with this classified information, which I guess is well, sort of just sin number one. Moment, right? <laughs> just pause there and say, he what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Took it home, you know, for homework. As one does. As one does. <laughs> you know, uh, when you work in a skiff with highly classified information about how to hack into foreign computer systems and you want to get ahead of the game, why not take it home to I work on? I just admire everyone's dedication. Like, it never occurred mm. to me to take classified information at home, mostly because, like, the idea of working from home was not something I was like, oh, <laughs> I need this- to put more hours in it. Wait, like, isn't this a perk if you work in a classified environment right. is that I you don't work at home? Here. Can I can I just say, Jared Kushner, don't try this at <laughs> uh, So this person puts the information on his personal computer, which is loaded with Kaspersky antivirus software, uh, and investigators now think that the software acting as antivirus software does, which is to scan your system and make a record of what's on it. That's how it protects the files on your computer. Uh, alerted folks in Russia to this, and then armed with that information, Russian hackers were able to home in on his computer and obtain this information. Um, I guess what I found sort of interesting in the reaction to this story, sort of, it, it's just kind of the reaction we just had too. Is like there's the Kaspersky element of this story, but there's also this is the third time that an individual has walked out of NSA a contractor. with a large amount of contract. Right, well, actually, whether he was a contractor or an employee, I yeah. mean, the rules aren't any different for them uh, in terms of how they're supposed to handle classified information. But yeah, to this point, I mean, it doesn't look great for the you know the, the non-NSA employee so, faction So either. let's just say to all of our listeners at NSA, whether you be employees or contractors, stop. <laughs> stop taking stuff home and putting it on your home computer. Yeah. You're hurting America. Yeah. Um, so I think that, so I guess the question, one big question we've had is sort of what now uh, about this? And there's been within the intelligence community, you know, concerns 
I would say for years, I've been hearing about them for years, certainly covering the beat, that Kaspersky as a company and as a product was compromised and effectively acted as an, you know, an arm or an agent for the Russian government. Um, the U.S. government last month banned all Kaspersky products and services from federal computer systems. So now, it's not being used or isn't supposed to be being used. A question anymore. for you, Shane, is your impression from your reporting that the concern about Kaspersky is that it is actively an arm of Russian intelligence? Yeah, like or knowingly? Is, or is the concern that Russian intelligence uh, has found ways to penetrate and exploit it and use its deployed base and that it's kind of a passive, uh, you know, a, 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 a passive an carrier mm -hmm. or a, a platform for Russian intelligence? What's the precise concern? I would say based on my reporting, the former. Wow. Um, well, remember, Eugene Kaspersky was trained by the FSB, yeah. right? I mean, his ties to Russian intelligence are not right, speculative. They are they are actual. Yeah. Isn't his whole brand, like, premised on not being an agent yes. of a government, though? Yes. And, and this is why, one, among one, one reason why this is so problematic for the company. I would recommend to people, actually, uh, go check out uh, a piece that was done in the Cypher Brief yesterday, where a number of former officials, including two former deputy directors of the NSA, are quoted uh, in response to our story, talking about Kaspersky and the threat that it could pose. And, you know, Ben, to your point about whether or not the product is sort of being used unwittingly, um, you know, by the Russian government that may have found a way into it or a backdoor, Chris Inglis, who was the deputy director, I guess three deputy directors ago now, um, said he found that very hard to believe that Kaspersky is an excellent antivirus uh, maker, has a, it, is, it is expert in when people are trying to intrude into systems, uh, and he found it very hard to believe that it would unknowingly have people maintaining persistent access or government persistent access to assist with systems in that way, mm -hmm. yeah, leading, I leading to, I think, to the conclusion that they knew it was happening mm -hmm. in Chris's view. Right. I mean, look, there are there are two distinct stories here. One is kind of the the persistent insider threat issue and the insider threat issue persisting yet again on Admiral Rogers watch and sort of what the um, uh, what that might mean for sort of his future, the future of the agency. <laughs> like, he seems is... like that, you know, he seems like the the last man standing, though. He's survived. Um, I mean, we talked about him last fall and sort of expected him to be gone. Before right. Trump even took office. But sort of uh, apart from the politics of it, when you're brought in sort of post Snowden to address a very specific issue and it doesn't get addressed, even if it actually isn't your personal fault, oftentimes we still hold sort of leaders of organization accountable for that, uh, for those failures. I, there is an element of um, the insider threat that people, I think don't want to acknowledge and that's that there's there's a part that you can't really solve there is at the end of the day you cannot treat fort meade like an airport there are thousands of people that have to move there are multiple buildings like you couldn't stop everything from moving in and out if you tried and you certainly couldn't administer a huge federal agency while doing it i brought in a recording device once. <laughs> he did well <laughs> with permission with permission but like at the state department my classified computer literally had no means of exporting data it was not connected to the internet. It had no USB port. Like it had no drive. There was no way I could have gotten information. Well, that's off the, of you it. raise a really interesting <laughs> point, and this has been brought up in the context of Harold Martin, who worked in a really, really sensitive part of NSA called Tailored Access Operations, which now has a new name. But um, 
one of the reasons why that office is particularly vulnerable to this kind of thing is that unlike other places in NSA, they are allowed to use removable storage media to transfer files from one computer to another. And as I understand it, that's done because they don't want to have them moving over a network in case the network were ever compromised. So what is being done out of abundance of um, uh, uh, concern for security has actually created a perfect uh, human vector to export that Well, and haven't we seen that the human vector is the most yeah, dangerous right. vector? Well, and to so, Susan's point, like, how do you correct for that? Right. So, first of all, I would say um, the State Department should not be held up as sort of the, uh, the <laughs> ultimate sort of secret information. Okay, the Russians didn't even need Kaspersky to hack <laughs> right. you guys. If the State Department <laughs> sucks at security and I can't take a USB of classified information home, how can the NSA do that? Right. So, <laughs> can I, can I just say... We, everyone can Improve. We have a great portrait of interagency tensions <laughs> yeah. going on right no, here. <laughs> no, but like, look, it is, you know, you you have to figure out how much security you can put onto a system and still have people be able to execute the fundamental mission. And that's that's a hard balance. And there is some just sort of manageable or acceptable risks. It doesn't mean that more can't be done. It doesn't mean that more shouldn't be done or that this is sort of, aw, shucks, this is just a thing that happened. Um, but if we're actually going to meaningfully address the insider threat problem, we probably have to stop pretending as though, you know, well, there's this fix, there's that fix. People love sort of their technological programs. Oh, you know, self-destructing data when it gets moved and, you know, all these different things that various companies are trying to pitch as like the be-all, end-all solution. I do think that people have to. I think working naked is a solution. (laughs) Having spent some time there, I would not uh, recommend that personally. You know, so so that's sort of one one issue that's just, it's it's really, really difficult to solve. And it, it doesn't matter how many times sort of congressional overseers pound their fists. It is an actually really, really difficult problem, and and it's gonna it's gonna take a long time. And frankly, I think these things are going to happen again. I would be shocked if this was the last sort of uh, episode or incident like this. That's kind of separate and apart from the Kaspersky issue. Um, in some ways, it doesn't really matter whether or not Kaspersky is working wittingly with the Russians or it has just become sort of a vector, right? So look, Kaspersky is a Russian company. They comply with laws in Russia. There are U.S. companies that comply with U.S. laws that facilitate U.S. intelligence activities. It's a good policy reason why the government should think really hard about the ways in which they want to use uh, you know, technology companies, particularly multinational corporations, in these sort of efforts, whether they're doing so witting or unwitting. But at the end of the day, the remedy isn't really different, right? The the bottom line is this is not something that it is secure for the government to be using. It's not something that's secure for individuals who work in the government to be using on their personal time. And for everybody else, we should be thinking long and hard about whether or not we want to use this particular software. So I actually think it does matter if Kaspersky is a witting participant or a vector. And the reason has to do with the way the company is understood internationally. So if you believe that, I mean, Kaspersky, the person, comes through Washington uh, and, you know, is treated as a serious, uh, as, as, a, as a 
you know, a, a serious guy who does cybersecurity. And the question of what his relationship to Russian intelligence is always trails him a little bit. But, uh, you know, it, it he's not treated as an agent of the Russian government. And if you contrast that with, uh, for example, the way um, – RT is understood, which is as, as a Russian propaganda agent. Uh, and we always ask the question, you know, should they be uh, re- required to register under FARA? I mean, we think about them differently. And the the answer, you know, the the reason for that is partly just a function of how, what, what we think the role that they think they're playing is. And I think that really does matter. But my, my point is not that it doesn't matter in, in a conversational sense or in a, in a you know, in, a, in a, the way we should understand these companies. It's that it doesn't matter on either set of facts that that, uh, that program should not be running on your machine or it should not be running on the machines of large categories of people. And so, sure, it, it does, like, it certainly does affect how we understand these individuals and, and the way they, you know, they attempt to influence cybersecurity policy, right? Because Sparsky has been really sort of loud and vocal, both on, you know, some U.S. domestic issues, but but certainly on sort of large international norms. So all that stuff is important. But I'm saying sort of to the extent, you know, the, the piece of the universe here that Congress really can control or the executive branch can control are U.S. government systems and then sort of drawing a slightly bigger circle, U.S. government contractors and employees on their personal time. You know, Best Buy announced and I think has now uh, reversed the decision that they were going to uh, just put Kaspersky on everything for free, you know, you're welcome, everybody. They don't that, sell the product anymore. Right. So, And then they pulled this product off of their shelves. And so those are, I think, whenever you're looking at it from a broader security standpoint, it, it yes, it matters, but it, it doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, the answer is, well, you, you shouldn't Quit be running this stuff. stuff. So Rational security brought to you by McAfee. Right. There's, so there's a, another question here, which, Shane, based on your story, so this happened a couple of years ago, right? Um, the, the, the intrusion that got this data about how the NSA hacks and right. how it defends against hacks. And so, like, has the NSA – should we be working on the assumption that the NSA has already developed – new tools um you know should we be worried that the nsa's ability to pursue its mission both offense and defense is compromised or this was all so long ago that it doesn't matter i would say well i mean susan can chime in on this too from the operational perspective especially but i think the operational damage was significant as was the the hal martin leaks and i think people would argue the snowden leaks too on the question of how damaging People I've talked to about this will say that when you're talking about, you know, exploits particularly, you know, your offensive tools, if you want to think of that way, um, that they have a short enough lifespan anyway that you don't want to – they're not going to be sitting around for years and years and years. You're sort of constantly having to recycle because people learn how to patch their systems or uh, you find a better exploit to use. But when it's all sort of presumed burned at once, I think, you know, when – it's like imagine like your stockpile kind of going up in flames. Um, you know you're going to have to be replacing it on a constant basis, but just not, you know, all of that happening at the same time. Hey, no big deal. We have Admiral Mike Rogers at the Right. And, and we, what, the other question raises in my mind, too, and Susan, maybe you do want to address this, is, I mean, this kind of goes back to what Ben was talking about a second ago, but at what point does the government have an affirmative obligation to basically publicly warn people? Because it's not as though this 
software is only used by the government. If this is a widely available piece of commercial product, then it sponsors NPR. Right, exactly. And the government clearly has made the determination that it's not safe to use, at least for them. So why would it be somehow safe for, you know, me to use or you? I mean, sort of going to your first point about how, you know, how bad is this? And look, I, I do think that taking everything cumulatively, um, the intelligence community and NSA specifically is at a crisis point. It really is under siege. You know, people uh, rightly turn around and criticize the agency, you know, for these breaches and how did these things get stolen? Uh, that's a totally fair question to ask. It also has immediate and long-term operational consequences. NSA is the single most important intelligence agency. It produces the vast majority of information in things like the president's daily brief. The vast majority. I mean, we're talking 90% of information that the U.S. military relies on. We have active military <clears throat> engagements ongoing. This is a really, really important source of U.S. power. Whenever you look at sort of that it is under siege from so many different fronts, including, frankly, the domestic U.S. policy discussion. And we'll talk about sort of where we are on 702, but sort of every single legislative initiative, every single engagement with Congress, every time it goes to the Hill, and actually from the president himself, sort of under attack, having to fight for every single inch at a point in time in which they are already struggling so much to recover from sort of this core damage. I think that if we take a step back and think, what are the vulnerabilities to U.S. national national security in a much broader sense? That starts to paint, a, a, at least to my mind, a really, really scary picture of where we are. Rational security brought to you by CrowdStrike. <laughs> <laughs> Keep going, Ben. I was hoping you would get that one. Uh, that's actually a great segue then into the, the last segment, which is uh, the House Judiciary Committee, right, has offered up its first kind of uh, opening bid for what a reform of Section 702 would look like. Um, so Susan, tell us a bit about what they're proposing and and kind of keep going on this idea here too that we've talked about on the show before that this law, this provision of the law, I should say, is one of the primary instruments by which that all-important agency, the NSA, collects foreign intelligence. Right. So um, the HJC bill is, um, it's not the actual, the first thing that's been put on the table. So the first was Tom Cotton, who um, who had sort of a, like the, the intelligence version of like repeal and go fuck yourself. But like, <laughs> not only is it a clean reauthorization, but the sunset is gone. It's that's, permanent reauthorization. That's future CIA director Tom Cotton to you. <laughs> oh, exactly. Or, so, or Secretary of State in his mind. Um, so the opening bit out of the SSCI was basically a like, you know, go screw yourself. Now the HJC has sort of <laughs> weighed in with a more moderate, I think, to their minds, compromise bill. It is bipartisan legislation. It's uh, endorsed by both the chair and the vice chair. The HIPSI, um, they tried really, really hard to get the HIPSI sort of on board. And I think Adam Schiff said it was a thoughtful first effort without going oh, any further. Sort of the, that's like, like when your kid misses the wiffle ball and you say, good try. Good try. try. Yeah. Wait, can first I just say God bless Adam Schiff because the House Judiciary Committee bill sucks. <laughs> it does suck. So um, it, it does a lot of different things, a number of which are um, are important, but sort of, you know, we, we don't have the, the time or the attention span to get into them here. The most significant thing it does is really so, you know, there's sort of this assumption that clean reauthorization is not politically possible. Um, and so the HGC sat down and said, like, okay, how many, what reforms can we do that's going to satisfy sort of the civil libertarians and not have huge operational consequences? And so um, what happened 
happened was I think that I think somebody uh, people could have seen the writing on this particular wall. Certainly the FBI saw the writing on the wall for some period of time, which is that they were going to be introduced to the underside of a bus because there is one issue that really is substantive, but it is sort of severable from the other IC equities such that it's a nice piece you can break off. It really does have operational consequence and impact, but sorry, guys, we really, really need this authority. And that sort of comes to be colloquial known as the backdoor search loophole. So um, 702 information, NSA sort of does the original collection, and then uh, it disseminates information out. So the FBI gets a very small piece of the 702 universe, um, sort of in these disseminated reports, some involving active investigations, some just sort of for situational awareness. Somebody said, okay, I see this thing, and it's going to go to the FBI. So then you get into FBI's databases. Um, and so basically, the standard operating procedure is that FBI's databases are are federated. You, Whenever, whenever uh, an FBI agent conducts one search, it goes to all of their different databases. This is a major post-9-11 reform. Form, connecting the dots, tearing down the wall. This was kind of the big deal thing that uh, led to some issues in the past, uh, not just 9-11, but also uh, Nadal Hassan uh, and some other major uh, sort of intelligence gaps. So what the HJC bill does, this has been really controversial because the FBI is allowed to query that for U.S. persons information uh, without a warrant. Their own database. Exactly. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, some people think it's the like all of 702 it's data, NSA, but it's right. not. It's this little section of, of FBI data that they hold that they're allowed to query, you know, in theory under the law for any criminal purpose. Um, they've said again and again, it's only done for important, important national security investigations. So what this bill does, it sort of bifurcates. It says, okay, if you're doing the query using U.S. person's information for a uh, foreign intelligence purpose, or it's a query reasonably designed to return foreign intelligence information, just keep going the way it currently exists. But if it returns evidence of a crime, uh, or if it's a query reasonably designed to return evidence of a crime, for that, you need to get a warrant with a probable cause standard. Um, so this is like really trying not just like to split the baby, but to like carve it up into these little bitty pieces. Ew. And do we know how many times, in, in general, do we know how many times when in the course of the FBI using this sub subgroup of the data or this fraction of the data that NSA gives to them, how often does it turn up evidence of a crime domestically versus how often does it tend to return information of foreign intelligence value? Um, so I believe that the statistics that the FBI has put in their um, in their transparency report is that they have never used this information in a prosecution that's not related to national security. Now, some of God, the, the sort of... The finest of fine distinctions here, though. Right. Well, is it derivative use? Right. They, so they've said they've never used it in a prosecution. And then they have they've cited that on one occasion somebody queried uh, the database for the purpose of uh, investigating a crime that was related to child abuse. They were looking at, um, you know, they were looking for national security purposes, saw evidence of a different crime, uh, and then started to do queries there. So, so this is kind of one like, time. Well, I mean, not, I don't mean to be flippant about this. I'm really trying to just finish up at metaphors. So we're talking about this is kind of a, a grab bag of stuff that the FBI gets handed by the NSA, and they don't know immediately what's in it until they start querying and they can't query without some kind of legitimate purpose with some particular target. They don't get to just open it up and start filing through it, right? Sure. And 702 itself is not, even though there's perception that it's bulk collection, it's not. It itself is targeted. So wanna... basically what you're saying is that the practical implication of this for the FBI is probably pretty minor, but the implication in terms of 
authority or scope of authority is significant. So I don't necessarily think that the practical implication is minor. Um, you know, you have to do a lot to ensure that you are complying with the law. So actually, I think I think of it sort of a little bit of the inverse of that point, which is that it's a huge amount of work and sort of this this rather um, onerous burden in order to to weed out a very very limited number gotcha. of cases. A very and in the face of zero <laughs> evidence that there's a problem. I mean, there you can't identify a case where the FBI has used backdoor searches to in any way violate somebody's civil liberties. You can't. So what's the civil libertarian argument This here? is well, the that, evil much broader than nexus that. between the civil libertarians and the Trumpists. The civil libertarians have been yelling about backdoor searches for years because th- because it's a it's a theoretical problem that bothers them a lot, and that, because they disagree with the court's Fourth Amendment analysis. Exactly the 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 theory of seven o two is that you you know there's a set of rules associated with the collection, but then once you've done the collection, if the FBI happens to query it for a legitimate purpose and it serves Got evidence it. of a crime, tough noogies. That's the theory of seven o two. The civil libertarians have never liked this because they've always seen it as a way uh, to conduct criminal searches pursuant to a much lower standard. There's no evidence that it functions that way, but it's a theoretical problem. Add to that the unmasking controversy, where lots of conservatives have suddenly discovered that there's, you know, in the face of, again, zero evidence, there's no evidence that and there was any unmasking irregularities or improprieties, but people are suddenly anxious about uh, 702-12333 collection and the, you, you know, searches of by, you know, liberals like your friends in government against, uh, against uh, you know, conservative, uh, you know, and all of a sudden you have this cry for reform that is bipartisan, that is evidenceless, and that is actually going to make it hard to reauthorize an important national security program well, without significant changes that are going to have practical implications. So ben, and, you- and we should just be honest about what's going on. It's a witch hunt. <laughs> Tell us how you really feel. What I hear you saying, though, is that, and and, and I think that if, you know, if if people representing the civil liberties side of this were here, they would take issue with you know a fair amount of this. But what I hear you saying that's is, why we exclude them from <laughs> rational. Security. So I'm going to stand which, in for we've that. We've masked this which, portion of rational this security. This is brought to you by IronNet. <laughs> Well, I'll just say as a preliminary matter. I mean, going back to 2008 when these provisions were were enacted. I mean, the law against them was that it was that it was bucket surveillance or blanket surveillance, and that this is not remotely what is envisioned by the Fourth Amendment. That you can't simply go to a company and say, "Give me a range of the following information." Now, I'm not trying to relitigate that, but the, you know, they would consider this provision poisoned from the beginning. So, I think that the civil liberties argument is not solely about this narrow issue that may be happening or may not be. But what I also hear, you, in terms of actual collection, but what I also hear you saying <clears throat> is that. We're not even going to have that debate because we've had this weird kind of marriage now between uh, civil libertarians who have a narrow focus on the backdoor surveillance problem with a group of conservatives who are arguing about unmasking, which, by the way, in the context in which they are arguing about it, 
i.e. the unmasking of people like Mike Flynn, was presumably not even collection that occurred under 702. So it sounds like we're not really going to have the very expansive, more fundamental debate over whether we should even have the authorities under 702 that were enacted nine years ago. So I think that's that's an important point. I, I think that's right. And there's there's another part of it as well, which is, um, you know, we have these sunset features that we build into controversial legislation, and they serve a good and important function in sort of, um, you know, requiring us to debate them over and over again. So previously, uh, 702 was authorized on a five-year sunset, the HJC bill says a six-year sunset. Um, yes, there is both the, the fundamental fight to have, there's also practical reforms that actually might make sense, things related Related to sort of compliance databases and transparency and other things that are um, uh, Congress doesn't want to uh, to actually take on because it's such a huge undertaking and involves so much money that they aren't actually prepared to appropriate. But because the way the sunsets uh, set the the sort of the timing about what we are going to debate, what we are going to fight over, they have a way of forcing sort of a political opportunism. So instead of saying, okay, you know, it's December thirty first, twenty seventeen. Is there a problem that needs to be solved? What problems can we solve? What improvements need to be made? It's this is the thing that's up for fighting over. Mm -hmm. And here's the political situation that's about how we generally feel about surveillance and whether or not we we think that there needs to be changes. And so even if this particular thing has anything to do with that, we're going to sort of tinker and move and tweak with this thing. And so it just has a way of of really warping the the sort of the pace and the actual substance of of you know surveillance reform in in a way that I think is negative I don't know how you, you know, there are serious uh, harms if you just permanently reauthorize things and and don't have the debate at all. So I actually don't know what the solution is. Mm. But what we have seen sort of the past couple of times, you know, less so with 215, but certainly now with 702, is how that sunset timeline paired with very, very volatile politics is just causing really strange sort of targets for reform, at least in my mind. That sounds like how we do legislation in general. Uh-huh. <laughs> Welcome to Washington. <laughs> All right, let's move on to uh, object lessons. Ben, do you have an object you would like to share? I do not. <laughs> I thought you were going to have one by Dude. now. No, but rational uh, security this <clears throat> week is brought to you by FireEye. <laughs> well, I'm going to share my object. Would you please? I have good my, enough for all of us. I have quite an object. It actually involves a story. Oh, detail. There's a little story behind the story element to this one. Gather around, kids. <laughs> so this takes us back to, I think it was 2010. And, and I don't have this object with me, but I'm going to picture it in your mind here for you. Uh, so Joe and I had been on vacation uh, overseas, and we were primarily in Italy and in Spain. And I remember eating in a restaurant in Barcelona where the waitress came up afterwards and she scanned our credit card using one of those... I guess now fairly standard in Europe machines where it was like it was a little wireless machine with her that she ran the credit card. Oh, through. yeah. You've mm-hmm. seen those now, right? Yeah, yeah. So I remember thinking as Joe and I were eating, like, that seems like a remarkably unsecure way of doing things. Not because I think that, you know, running your credit card through the little point of sale terminal is necessarily secure, but I wondered if it could be hacked wirelessly or it just seemed new. How and therefore many people scary. could hack it wirelessly there in the right. restaurant? <clears throat> right. It just seemed new and it was therefore strange. So uh, we land back in the United States. 
Uh, and there's a voicemail on my phone, and it says this is uh, MasterCard calling, uh, and we wanted to let you know that we have deactivated your account because our fraud system was triggered. Um, were you recently traveling overseas, and did you make the following purchases? And there were a bunch of purchases that we had not made. And so I remember saying to Joe, like, you know, I bet it was that damn thing in the restaurant, you know? So anyway, credit card gets turned off. We call back. We say, yes, we still have the credit card, et cetera, et cetera. They issue a new card, fine and dandy. Um, so then we are traveling back. We were landing in Atlanta. We're traveling back home. So we get home to our apartment that we're living in at the time. And mind you, this is a building that has a concierge that receives packages for you. So no one is supposed to be able to come up and put a package outside your door. We get off the elevator, go to our front door, and there's a package sitting in front of our apartment. Russia. And a white cardboard envelope with my name on the front and the address. Open it up. It is a CD containing Kaspersky antivirus software. That I'm sure the Russian embassy hand-delivered to your apartment, They're just Shane. so worried about your computer They're security. They're so thoughtful. They thought, you know what? That guy, he needs a little extra boost. Okay, but this is super creepy, Shane. It's super creepy. So creepy. It's so weird. Was there Did a you return save? address? There was no return address on it. Did, Did you, you save the CD? Um, I think I did, but I it may have gotten lost in a move at some point. I certainly never loaded it on yeah. anything. It, it's the I don't ul- think I even put it's it near It's the ultimate spear phishing attack, right? Uh-huh. It's it's a hand delivery. Right. Of- Here, right. please upload my virus into your computer. Wow. <laughs> so this past week, right after your story broke, uh, you know how LinkedIn will occasionally send you an email and say, like, all these people looked at your profile? And someone from Kaspersky looked at my profile on LinkedIn, Shit. and I was like, "Shit!" So wait, Shane, did you have, um, did you have, uh, did you keep the disc? I don't think it's. I have it someplace, but I have to. That's go look a shame for it. because if you'd kept it, one of we could turn it over to one of the uh, many. Uh, uh, computer security firms that sponsored Rational Security <laughs> this week for analysis and to see. Although it was like, this was more than 10 years ago, right? So it's, This was like 10 years ago, yeah. So and I remember, and it, this is, it was interesting because at the time, I think I was working at National Journal or, yeah, I must have been a National Journal, uh, as an intelligence reporter. And even then, you would hear intelligence people saying, that Kaspersky software, really good, I wouldn't use it. You would just hear people say that. Mm. People were saying Many, many people, people. many, many people, people say, aye, 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 aye. well, if that's... I was a Russian spy, I would definitely target you, Shane. <laughs> oh, <Aww>. thanks. <laughs> that makes me feel loved. Uh, well, please don't target me. Uh, at least not this week. I'm super busy. Except for your, with your five-star ratings. <laughs> <laughs> Except for your five-star ratings. That's it. Wherever you download Rational Security, target us with some awesome five-star ratings. Um, that does bring us to the end of the podcast. So sad. Rational Security, of course, is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions, and you can find our show archive on our website. You can follow us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. Our audio engineer this week is Matthew Kahn. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia. Our music is performed by Eugene Kaspersky and the Special Delivery. <laughs> I think it's the Special Deliveries. Really? Well, there was yeah. only one that we know. It's the backup of. band. The backup band? Yeah. yeah. The band could be called like Special Delivery. It's true. I have just Eugene Kaspersky and Special Delivery. That is as creepy as what happened to <laughs> Yeah. If he did have a backup band, I'm pretty sure Sophia Yan would. Well, I don't know if Sophia Yan would play in his backup band. No way. Sophia Yan doesn't really do backup bands. She's more of a solo artist. More of a front front. Yeah, she's more of a front one. Front ground. Yeah. On behalf of my friends, Ben Wittis, Tamar Kaufman Wittis, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. 
Dasvidanya. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.